Hello and welcome to episode 78 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. There you are, Rachel. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> that was very slow. <laughs> um, and in this episode, we'll be comparing 19th century and 20th century literature. Um, it seems like a big scope, but I'm sure we'll do it great. Um, and the second <laughs> half, we'll be looking at two unfinished novels by Jane Austen, The Watsons versus Sanderton. But it's been a while, Rachel. How are you? What are you reading? I'm all right, thank you. Um, I've had a lovely half term. Went to Amsterdam and Ooh. The Hague, which was lovely. Also, a very large selection of bookshops in both cities. In fact, the Dutch seem to be a book-loving people. Yeah, excellent. Um, and they had some absolutely wonderful um, like modern bookshops with great English selections. And... Um, also some lovely second-hand bookshops with, with English selections, so I may have treated myself um, to a volume or two. Um, I'm currently reading, I cannot pronounce this surname, so I apologise to any Polish listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading the Nobel Prize winner, Olga Tokarczuk, is mm-hmm. my guess, is how I'm pronouncing that. Um her book, which is called Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, which is a quote from a William Blake poem. Oh, I wondered where I'd come from. Yeah, and um, I didn't initially think it was going to be my cup of tea, but I wanted to branch out, try something new, um, and I'm absolutely loving it. It's it's a bit... I'm not quite sure where it's going at this point. Um, it's a bit of a sort of a murder mystery, but at the same time, is it a murder? Um, we're in like this really isolated countryside community in Poland and it's the winter and it's really cold and snowy and it's a really and the the main protagonist is a very interesting woman who's elderly lives by herself she's um she's really obsessed with the rights of of animals and also Mm. with astrology and it's all a bit bizarre, but at the same time compelling. So um, I'm enjoying it very much. And I've got her. She didn't actually win the Nobel Prize for that book. She won the Nobel Prize for another book called Flights, um, which was completely sold out in England after the Nobel Prize thing. Um, but the book, The Waterstones in Amsterdam, who knew there was a Waterstones in Amsterdam, mm. um, had a whole table for the copies. So I snapped it up. Um, and had a lovely chat with the with the guy at the desk. He told me he'd worked there for twenty plus years. Again, who knew there'd been a water stains in Amsterdam for twenty plus years? And had never visited London. And I told him he must come. And that was a, a lovely time that we had. So there you are. If you are visiting Amsterdam, you can use your water stains card in states <laughs> in Amsterdam in case you're concerned. I've also um, started reading a lot of crime novels because I feel like this is the time of year when that's what you want. Okay. Um, and so I'm re- starting to reread Dorothy L. Sayers, as we've just discussed. Um, and I've also got really into the Simonon Maigret novels. Oh, there's a million um, of them as well, aren't there? Yeah, there are. And I'm reading them in French. So it's. Um, Ooh, la la. I know. Is he Belgian? Was he French? Uh, I can't remember. I don't know. Are you thinking of Poirot? I don't think I'm thinking of Poirot, <laughs> but. Because <laughs> I don't think he's real. <laughs> Um, I don't know what he Maybe is, that's but um, I'm yeah, they're they're good fun, but they're I have to you know they're they're a bit slow going obviously because uh, I can't read as fast in French as I can in English, but um, yeah, it's it's good, and I'm looking forward to um, 
also perhaps doing a little bit of um, British Library Crime Classics. Um, I need to have a look at their new collection. Oh, yes. I yeah. just read one recent, recently called The Secret of High Eldersham, I think it was called. Oh, I've read that one. It's really mm. good. Yeah. yeah, I enjoyed it. It was, it was not what I expected, but it was good <laughs> by Miles yeah. Burton. Um, cool. Well, I've also been on a break to somewhere equally cosmopolitan and exotic, Yorkshire, um, <laughs> uh, and did find a few second-hand bookshops, including one that didn't have any fiction, which was very oh, odd. <laughs> and it wasn't advertised as not having fiction. And I did say to him, where's your fiction section? He said, oh, I don't have room. And he definitely, <laughs> did, it was a very small space and he had boxes of books everywhere. It was one of those ones where you can't really see anything. Well, how I'd... does he make any money? Well, I can't imagine he does. Particularly yeah, since yeah. it's in a tiny little town um, that, you know, most of the other shops there were, you know, spa, essentially. Uh, but, I, you know, I bought a couple of volumes of Cecil Beaton's diaries, so not not always lost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and while away, I, I read some really good books, actually. I read Molly Fox's Birthday, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. in a future episode, hopefully, because you've read that yeah. as well. Um, and I read an R.C. Sheriff. I've been sort of saving saving him because they're not that easy to come by but i bought the the wells of saint mary's uh, ah. which is not been reprinted by anybody yet hopefully it will be at some point but yeah, i got an old paperback of it um and it's about uh, a village called saint mary's where they discover that their well miraculously cures people and then what this does to the village community is everyone tries to sort of make the mo- most potential out of that Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. I love our sheriff. He's such a... So, yes, I read a, there's a review of them, and I can't remember who it was, but someone commented and said he's a, a consummate storyteller, and I think that is a very good description of what mm. he does, because whatever strange or not strange things he's writing about, he just tells a story in such a captivating way. He I does. everything now. Um, and then I just reread Enduring Love by Ian McEwan for my book club. Oh. Which, yeah, it's possibly the longest time I've ever had between reading and rereading something. It's been 15 years, um, mm. and I enjoyed it again, although I had not remembered anything except the first chapter, and I still think the first chapter is better than the rest. But. I actually went to a, a talk that Ian McEwan gave the other night ah. um, with, with the screenwriter of Atonement, and they were talking about Atonement and its journey from... Um, page to to screen and i've i'm well known for my dislike of um ian mckeown mm, you also quite but wonder I, why you went <laughs> yeah well it was a it was a Beck event and me and some girls from the master's degree went together um and it was do you know what i i was actually surprised by how personable and engaging i found him and i thought well that's just gone to preview wrong <laughs> um so I, I was humbled by the experience and it was a yeah, really fascinating discussion actually, I really enjoyed that, which then made me think perhaps I ought to you know, revisit some of the books that I've considered to be not worth my time mm. oh, no. maybe we could do him sometime yeah, maybe and there was a film with Enduring Love that I, I watched back in the day but no one seems to remember now yes, with um, Risa Fansme Indeed, and Daniel Craig. Craig, yes, an early a pre-Bond Daniel Craig. Yeah, which um, I I'd remember that a bit better than the book. And when when it did, the book turned out not to have the same ending as the film. I (laughs) went back to check to see if I had remembered the film, and yes, they 
to do things a bit differently. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Well, wow. the t- first half of today's episode was suggested by Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, and she says, have you ever done 19th century versus 20th century? And I think someone did suggest this a while ago, potentially, Elizabeth. Um, and it, <laughs> Sorry, Elizabeth. It... <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Ignored you. Sorry. <laughs> I remember looking at it thinking that's such an enormous topic. I don't know how we'll possibly do it. But since we didn't have anything else, other suggestions, we're going to do it. But you seem yeah. quite excited about doing it. So well, you know, I've always got lots of opinions about anything. So, <laughs> And this is definitely a thing. Yeah. Uh, many things. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know where to start, other than the fact that there's a great deal there. And <laughs> um, I don't know, the, the 20th century seems to me to have a more variety than the 19th century, but I don't know if that's just because I know more about it. Well, um, if you're interested, I could I could take you on a tour of 19th century literature. You've got three um, minutes. <laughs> as, as everyone instantly falls asleep behind the screen. Um <laughs> So I think there's there's quite a distinction in the 19th century. I think early 19th century novels certainly do not tend to be read anymore. Um, and a lot of mid-19th century novels as well, actually, to be fair. Poor old 19th century. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, you've got Regency stuff. So you've got Austin and um, also the very beginning of the 19th century. You've got quite a lot of Gothic stuff that's hanging mm. over from the end of the 18th century. Um, and then you kind of move into the sort of social purpose novels of the 30s and 40s. So you've got people like Gaskell um, and then you move into the 50s, which is, you know, Elliot and stuff like that. And then you get into the 60s and 70s where you start to get um, more sort of, I suppose, sensation-y type novels. So you've got Wilkie Collins, you've got Dickens, you've got, um, uh, what's her name? Um, Mrs. Hen- Mrs. Henry Wood and um, Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Yes, thank you. Well done. I love how you just know. <laughs> and so then you've got those more like real like chunksters of of books that are your real page turners, your mm. night round the fire sort of books. And then as you get towards the end of the century, you've certainly got more books that are about social issues to do with the slums in London. You've got um, start to have a revival of the gothic so you've got things like dracula um and yeah there is a lot of variety but i, I do think there's also there's a lot of, of books that i frankly think are are better off um lost to <laughs> lost to time i mean especially when the three volume novel was was the standard yes. you've got a lot of books that just, a lot of padding a lot of bloating and also you've got a lot of books that were published initially in um in serial form in periodicals and magazines and things so they were having to to fulfill a a a kind of a word requirement and also a requirement to have a a big twist or a big cliffhanger at the end of every chapter and it, it just it feels very contrived i mean obviously also at the end of the 19th century you've got the beginning of detective fiction with arthur conan doyle mm. uh wilkie collins really as well which it is great fun to read. It's lovely to see those early ones. I mean, but um, I can understand that a lot of people don't don't enjoy 19th century novels or they associate 19th century novels with very long, very bloated, which not all of them are. There are a lot of really, really mm. good 
novels and also a lot of good novels by women that are being rediscovered more and more as the years go by. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's been forgotten, um, but presses like Persephone are, are bringing them back. Um, someone like Amy Levy, for example, who wrote some really lovely shorter novels. Um, when I did my master's degree, we did, we did a lot of more obscure stuff, which I really enjoyed. Um, and also there's a lot of lovely 19th century children's fiction. Yes. That's true, yeah. and a lot of not so lovely, very moralistic. Yeah, I mean that's that's the problem. A lot of of nineteenth century fiction is heavily moralistic, and it's just not something that's very palatable nowadays to people. Um, and it is it's clumsy as well, a lot of it, and it you know really does hit you around the head with it. Um, and I suppose there was a different purpose for the fiction at the time. I should say, in an effort to um, make this not such a broad topic, we'll probably stick to English literature or yes. British literature rather than covering all literature everywhere because that's terrifying. Yeah. Um, yes, and I think for a lot of people nowadays, if they tend not to, you know, if they haven't studied literature or if they don't get a lot of secondhand books, if they rely on what's in bookshops, and the 19th century is basically Dickens, Bronte, yeah. Frank, Mary Shelley in Austen. And that's largely what's stood the test of time in terms of popularity, of course. And, you know, that's what the costume dramas have popularized as well and and all that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Although there is this sort of, um, I guess, paradox, which I particularly found studying 20th century literature, is that all 19th century literature is now out of copyright because, if, well, at least in the UK, if an author's been dead more than 70 years and their books are out of copyright. So there is this world now of e-books, of all these um, yes. authors that aren't, you know, Bronte's Dickens, who aren't the most popular ones who you can get, whereas in the 20th century, particularly the later 20th century, whilst there's, there's a great deal more cheap publishing and a great deal more books on the second-hand market from there you can't get the free books in the same way so perhaps people are less likely just to to dip in and discover them but at the same time i think there's probably i don't think that people would come up with the same list of five major names of the 20th century in the same way they would the five major names of the 19th century i, I you know virginia wolf would probably be there but i can't think i don't think everyone would have the same list no i don't think so um and I think, yeah, it's interesting, 20th century fiction, again, you go through real phases, and I think we talked about this before, it's quite interesting that often, you know, when you've done your um, century of books and things, mm-hmm. it's it can be a real challenge to find uh, books that you want to read from particular decades. And, and for me personally, when I think about the type of literature I read from the 20th century, I don't tend to find much from the 60s, 70s or 80s that I want to read. Yeah, it, I mean, I find 80s and weirdly the 1910s hard in that I find some of the <laughs> 1910s seem to have been this, and the 1900s, maybe this continuation of what was going on in the 1890s, but before the proliferation of popular publishing, before mass literacy, before World War One sort of shifted everything in the, I guess everything, but also in the publishing scene and in um, the sort of people who were willing and able to read books. Um, whereas, yeah, when you get to the other end of the, tw- the 20th century, um, I can't think of many novels that I love from the 80s. And the impression I get, and it may be unjustified, is that everything was sort of Thatcherite and brash and you know clunky mobile phones and businessmen in suits and all those sorts of books, although I can't now think of any examples. <laughs> Vampire of the Vanities, maybe. That's probably like that. 
yeah, but that's American. I think that's that's the point. I think there's a lot yeah, of. That's true. Um, I think those years post 1950 is where American fiction really comes into its own, and you've a lot of the the classics or the books that are, uh, got a lot of of noise and buzz around them are American books, and I don't think English literature or British literature, I should say, sorry, um, was was really doing anything particularly innovative or amazing in those years. I mean, forgive, I, I don't, I wasn't around, so I don't know. <laughs> but, um, that, for example, you know, when you're at university and, and you're studying the 20th century, you don't have a course on that period of time. You kind of go, you finish around, you know, mid-century or even before then, really, and then all of a sudden you jump to 90s, 2000. Um, there seems to be this kind of hinterland in the middle of, of stuff that people aren't really sure about. I mean, there's a little yeah. bit of interest around sort of feminist literature of the 60s and 70s, maybe. But again, that's always been very much niche presses. Virago being the pioneer in bringing those back, obviously. People like Margaret Atwood is, is really, I think, for me, the first major voice to come from that kind of post-war period. But again, she's not British. Um, yes, when I think of British literature from that period, I, just, I tend to think of the women writing about adultery in the Midlands, yes. sort of, you know, yes. Margaret Drabble and Margaret Forster and Nina Borden and these sorts of, mm. they're exploring what it is to be uh, a, a woman in often middle class, sort of middle of the country areas, um, which, you know, is very admirable and all that, but I, I find... Certainly, of of the Borden and Travel novels I've read, sort of so preoccupied with middle classness and with relatively petty moral issues that um, I know it's sort of maybe it was they they ghettoize themselves into that decade um, and to the, the um, thoughts of the time, if that makes sense. In not they weren't trying to write the great British novel or the, you know the great novel of the twentieth century in the way that particularly around the 20s and 30s, everyone seemed to be trying, all the highbrow writers seemed to be trying to work out what was the most they could do with the novel, what was what were the sort of elastic limits of a novel, how can you change language to convey thought, and um, all the, you know, the, the modernists trying to to see what was the possibility of the novel, and all, all the great middlebrow writers as well, just writing about everyday lives and writing brilliantly about them, but... Um, I guess, yeah, as you were saying, I don't think there was an enormous amount that happened to shift the novel between... Well, I, I mean, I'm not sure there's an enormous amount to shift the novel between the 50s and today, <laughs> but that could be too controversial a viewpoint. I don't think anyone's been wildly experimental in a way that has shifted the way that people interact with fiction in the way that they were at that time. No, I think that's a good point, really. I think that's something to consider, you know, what was happening in that in that time and and i think you're right there's there isn't a a sense that fiction was being molded to fit the time in any particular way if you think about modernism that really does reflect that enormous sense of of wanting to move away from the 19th century and moving away from a structured and restrictive way of looking at the world and thinking about wow you know what can we what can we do with words what can we do with with um the experience of what it is to be human how can we get that onto the page how can we put Mm. the vitality and and the um really the kind of the speed really of the human mind onto the page Mm. um and when you think about late 20th century novels there's yeah there's nothing really that's 
that makes you think, oh, you know, wow, this is this is innovative. This is exciting. This is this is fresh. This is something that I've not read before. I think certainly for me that there, there is a sense of the books that I've read from that period. It's either the kind of stuff you're talking about that very much middle class, you know, Surrey commuter belt live experiences i'm thinking like penelope mortimer that kind of thing or um you've got historical novels looking back to to the past um and that starts to be the kind of the 80s and early 90s we start to to get historical fiction coming back um but otherwise it's all just a bit unmemorable isn't it but it was something, yeah, I was just thinking that something that does set the very late 20th century apart from the rest of it and from the 19th century is that there was a lot more non-white voices, a lot more yes. translated fiction, a lot more non-middle class, non-other class. And I think that's really, to the best of my understanding, that is right at the end of the 20th century. So even in the 80s, you weren't getting huge class disparity in voices, not disparity, you know what I mean? A lot of right. class voices. But yes, thank yeah. you. Um and obviously, yeah, yeah, in, uh, in the 19th century, it was enti- almost entirely white, wealthy people who got to write. Well, maybe not wealthy, but, you know, certainly not working class people. No, well, apart from Dickens, maybe. But, you know, it's it's thinking about, um, yeah, as well, that, that that conscious decision from the late 90s into the 21st century of thinking about whose voices are we not hearing? Mm. Who, who do we need to, to open up? The, the door to and that has also opened up the door to much more experimental fiction because you've got people from different cultural backgrounds attempting to p- portray on the page those those different voices and those those different experiences and, and you know now you've got novels that are poetry you've got all sorts of interesting stuff going on um some of which you know is is interesting some of which isn't necessarily my cup of tea but at least at least people are again starting to think about what is fiction what is a novel how can we play around with those definitions whereas i think the 20th century the later part of the 20th century anyway is quite static creatively yeah and graphic novels are obviously a big shift i'm not sure when they came in obviously much more popular now than they have been ever before but Mm. maybe that was 21st century that they first took off not sure Hmm. well as Elizabeth said when she suggested this that it's pretty obvious which one Simon will choose (laughs) and she's not wrong it is the 20th century for me Um, I'm not so sure which of the ones you choose I should have said the reason that I would choose 20th century I mean the fact that it makes up 80% of my reading certainly helps but I just find there's so much more variety because from the middle mid or you know early to mid century onwards it was so much more so much cheaper to publish a novel that suddenly all these other vo- new voices, new proliferation of literature came out. That there's so many more options, um, and that obviously continues through to this day. So that's why I would choose 20th century. Quite apart from the fact that all my favourite books come from the 20th century, I just think that it's increasingly, um, yeah, diverse of, in options. And as the teal books decision means, you can only read from now on one century of books. <laughs> I'm going to pick that one. <sighs> Hmm. The thing is, if I pick 20th century, then I can't read Jane Austen, I can't read the Brontes, true, true. can't read Wilkie Collins, can't read Anthony Trollope. Now I'm going to have to go 19th. Uh, 
a revision to type. <laughs> we have I know, what a shock. Fulfilling our roles. I wasn't sure which way you go, but I did think once you started thinking about those beloved authors you just mentioned. Yeah. Well, speaking of 19th century, in our section of asking for our opinion slash advice, oh. um, which is thank, thank you, um, Rebecca, who has got in touch with a question about recommending Georgian literature. Where oh. should she start? She's taking part in January. Where people are reading Georgia books in January, <laughs> which is a brilliant name. And I think that was Goodreads were running that. So if you search for George January, I don't know if it's open to anybody, um, but find out, I guess. <laughs> see, if, see if you can join in. Um, and, so George yeah. as in Regency? Well, yes, because I, I had a sort of little hope that it'd be George V and I'd be able to come up with all my, you know, yeah. early 20th century novels. But then I looked it up and it is... George's one to four, and apparently William, whichever William came around then, also counts as Georgian somehow. Yeah, um, well, he was the king before Victoria. Well, you weren't called George, was he? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, basically, it's between 1717, 1710, something around that, um, and yes, 1837 when Queen Victoria ascended to the throne. Um, so, you've mentioned a few names already. But is there anywhere particularly you suggest that she she dive into Georgian literature? Well, I mean, you can't go wrong with Frankenstein, obviously. Um, Unless you happen to read it, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I like it, actually. (laughs) Um, And I would say, if you want an interesting insight into what was popular at the time, getting yourself involved in um, early Gothic literature. So you've got um, Matthew Lewis, the monk, um, Mm -hmm. and you've got Anne Radcliffe's novels, so The Castle of Otranto and The Italian are her most famous ones. I thought The Castle of Otranto is by Horace Walpole. Oh, yes, you're right. What am I thinking of? Her other one that's called The Castle of Something. I guess there is one, isn't there? But I can't remember what now. No, I can't think. Hang on, let me Google it. Yes, Horace Walpole's Poles, The Castle of Otranto is officially the first Georgian no- um, novel, but I think it was published in the 1760s, so it might be outside of... I think I'll be getting to one of the early Georges. Um, our period. Um, I was going to mention Castle of Otranto, which I read a couple of years ago, because it is so stupid, but in mm-hmm. such a compelling way. It was really, really is a page turn, despite the fact that not a single moment in it is makes any sense. No. The Mysteries of Adolfo. That's what yes, I was thinking. Yes. There you go. Um, let's think what else. I mean, obviously, you've got Jane Austen. Um, if you want to torture yourself for days, you could read <laughs> Fanny Burney, Cecilia. I've only read, or at least only finished, one Fanny Burney novel, which is Evelina, and I loved it. But it is about a quarter of the length of her other books, and it's still pretty okay. long. Um, Pamela. I mean, Trist- you could read Pamela, Tristan, I guess. Tristram Shandy. Um, you know, all those early novels that are, frankly, Tom Jones. This is taking me back to uh, <laughs> the the beginning of the, my very first course at university, the origins of the novel. Um, <laughs> and are you recommending all these books? No, I'm not saying? recommending them. I'm just throwing <laughs> them out there. Um, I would say that, you know, uh, that early Gothic fiction is good fun, and then you can read Northanger Abbey after you've done yes. it as a, as a treat to yourself. Yes, I think I found that very instructive to read the Castle of Trento and see the sort of books that Catherine Morland was reading in Northanger Abbey, because it does give you an insight to her, her mind. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, I've I stuck. I also have more warning because I I saw the message, but um, I've stuck to just just two recommendations um, of things I actually liked because there aren't that many from the things I've read from that period. So, Castle of Trento was one, and for somebody around Jane Austen's era who is less well known today, I'd suggest Mary Brunton. Have you read any Mary oh, Brunton? No, I haven't. She wrote two books called Self Control and Discipline, which sound <laughs> like they're not <laughs> going to be a great amount of fun, um, but they are so fun. They, they are quite Austin esque. One of them is more absurd. Um, some very unlikely things happen, but they're both sort of rags to riches to rags type tales. And um, Jane Austen was a fan of them and wrote about them in yeah. her letters at one point. And indeed, in the recent adaptation of Sanditon, one of them was mentioned, but we can come back to that later. But yeah, she, she was reprinted, I think she only wrote those two books, they were reprinted in, there was a series called Mothers of the Novel that came out, I know, in the 80s maybe, and the copies available in that. Um, and yeah, I should reread them, they're, they're good fun. I, I, and it feels like it was maybe deliberately um, satirical to name them that, because it's, yeah, they sound so, like instructional manuals and they are far from it. Oh, so I'm going to look that up. So Maria, Mary Bruton, did you say? Brunton. Brunton. I think it's Brunton. B-R-U-N-T-O-N, I believe. But, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, yes, thank you very much for getting in touch, Rebecca. I hope that has been some help. <laughs> if you would yeah, like thanks. our advice on any topic, probably to do with books, um, then get in touch at torbooks at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, we would. And on to two very short, not really books. <laughs> we were away for five weeks and we've read two unfinished books. Um, the Watsons and Senderton by Jane Austen. Which would you like to introduce us to? Um, I'm happy to do either. Well, since you just read The Watsons 10 minutes ago. Mm. <laughs> <whatever. Literally. laughs> um, why not do that? Okay. Um, so the Watsons is a, in my version of the book, a 99 page, um, fragment of a novel that was written, um, apparently according to the introduction, um, after Pride and Prejudice and Sensibility, just before Austin moved to Bath, um, and is about Emma Watson, who is newly returned to the family home after having been brought up by an aunt. The aunt has just made uh, an imprudent second marriage um, and has been taken off to Ireland by her Irish captain of a husband um, <laughs> who no longer wishes Emma to be around. And unfortunately, Emma was supposed to be the heiress of her, of her aunt's fortune and her aunt has thrown it away on her Irish captain. So Emma, who's been brought up in this more genteel environment and with the expectation of being an heiress, is now suddenly penniless and is um, cast back on the family who she hasn't seen for 13 years. So she's 19 when the book starts. Um, she's got a cast of various brothers and sisters. And um, the the, uh, the chapters that we have are not even chapters, really. Um, we, we experience her first ball in the town where she where her family live and she makes quite the stir amongst the young men <laughs> of the county and um yeah it, we find out a little bit about um how that might cause problems between her and, and her sisters all of whom are unmarried except for that 
Oh, no, yes, you're quite right. That's her yeah. brother who's married, isn't yeah. it? Um, with a sister-in-law that she doesn't like. Yeah. But, uh, and Sanderton... So, yeah, the Watsons was unfinished because Jane Austen, for whatever reason, decided not to finish it. Sanderton was unfinished because, sadly, she died while she was writing it. Um, it's heroine is called Catherine Hayward. Catherine? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Gone blank. Yes. Um, and she is living in a little sort of nothing town, which Mr. Parker happens to visit because he's on the way to get to try and locate a physician to come and to, to the coastal resort of Sanderton, which he has big plans for turning into a tourist spot for the whole nation. Um, he manages to have an accident near her house and friend's ankle, which leads to him staying with them for a while, because why not, even though he doesn't know who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a treat, he says he'll take back their daughter, uh, Catherine to stay at Sanderson for a while. Um, whilst there's it's a longer f- fragment or a longer, longer section than the Watsons, there's not really that much more happens because we, we get invite, we get introduced to, um, various other characters, including the twice married Lady Denham, married once for money and once for a title, twice widowed, um, and her nephew and niece, who are obviously after her, or at least hoping to inherit her fortune, Mr. Parker, who's a rather silly man has some equally silly brothers and sisters turn up and then the brother who is perhaps not silly mr sydney parker who we all we know about him is that he's about 27 and he's handsome appears on the penultimate page so who knows what would have happened well i suspect he'd have married Catherine at some point but who knows? <laughs> um yeah i had not read either of these until last last couple of weeks and i didn't really know anything about them either um, but I did find it interesting what complete worlds they were in this unfinished sections, and it gives you a sort of insight to her writing process and that she wasn't drafting it and then building up characters later, or perhaps, perhaps they would have been built up more, but it it felt like she had this whole world created and was just writing it, which makes it all the more frustrating that they stop and you've got these characters we're introduced to and who sometimes very funny or, you know, very foibled. Foibled? Is that a word? Anyway. Um, <laughs> and then they just disappear because she didn't get any further. Yeah, I mean, it's for, for me with both of them, I, I, just, I felt really disappointed. I, you know, you get to the end and you're like, okay, so what's going to happen next? And then you turn the page and there's nothing. Um, there's a void. Um it's I agree with you completely. I, I think both of the both of these fragments are can very feel very complete. They feel like she'd she'd really thought them through and that these characters were alive to her when you start reading them. I mean something that I absolutely love about Jane Austen is is that for me her voice is just so mm. fantastically vibrant and she manages to capture a, a, a real personality of each of her characters immediately. Um and you know, you either warm to them straight away or you hate them and there's no in between really and it it felt just like reading one of her her published like her published completed novels mm. um and i think also what's what made me kind of sad particularly about sanderton is that you could see how with sanderton she was going in a different direction from her other novels as the introduction to that one explained that was the first novel that she'd written in peacetime after the end of the Napoleonic um, mm. wars and the the also the movement of it to a seaside resort of there being um you know a different cast of characters there's even a a, a black character in that book it it represents a much more 
diverse um, cast of characters and there's lots more possibility about what might be happening. This is a country that's finally at peace. And also seaside resorts, as we know from all of Austin's novels, uh, bad stuff goes down. So um, people are naughty by the sea. And you've got all of those interesting elements coming together all these people from very different backgrounds is also the desire to make money out of this resort is there going to be unscrupulous behavior etc and you know this this would have been um you know a departure for austin perhaps from her previous novels and would have seen her maturity as a writer and, and to be cut off when it's just getting started feels really frustrating whereas the watsons felt more like I was reading, you know, perhaps the the beginnings of persuasion or the beginnings of Emma. There are elements of her later books that she took from this, I think. Mm, you know, mm. obviously the, the heroine of this book is called Emma. We also have that sense of, of the sisters, the, the nastiness amongst the sisters that, that you do start to see in persuasion. Um and it's interesting. I mean, I don't uh, like you. I don't know very much about these. And I'm wondering the circumstances around the Watsons, why she chose not to continue with it. Um, because to me, all of the elements are there for a fantastic story. So I don't know what her thought process was in thinking this isn't worth going on with. I can't imagine why she would have thought that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think I agree with saying with, with Sanderson that it does seem you know, the whole seaside resort and that would have been a really interesting angle. I also think, I mean, it's still very obviously Jane Austen, of course. Yeah. Um, the same character. She manages to, to spear the ridiculousness of characters really quickly when yeah. they are ridiculous. Um, I thought it was really funny. I re- uh, And particularly after Persuasion, uh, um, the novel she was writing before this, which um, I know a lot of people, it's their favourite. To, to me, it's sort of low down the list because it's the least funny of her books in my mind. Um, I think it's interesting that she, whilst exploring new things, has gone, seems to me to have gone back to a more, um, I don't know, sort of lightheartedness in, in pointing out the ridiculousness of people that perhaps yeah. was, was not quite there in the same way in situation. I think intentionally was not quite there. Um, and something I found interesting with Catherine from what we see of her is she's, you know, she's very, intelligent and, and witty and has a sharp mind like many of her characters but the thing that wasn't there that seems to be there for all her other heroines is that she doesn't seem to have a very obvious flaw because all the others you've got you've got like elizabeth being prejudiced you've got emma being um you know too certain of her own opinions and matchmaking you've got catherine being too flighty and imaginative they've all got that sort of fatal hubris that the novel will gradually unveil to them they will realize it's there and they will improve as people mm. and the, and Catherine seems already to be so you know just great and I, it wasn't maybe it would have come in her in her first dealings with with Sydney Parker she'd have revealed mm. something of herself there but um yeah as it was yeah I, I couldn't see me, how she would change yeah I felt for me the heroine was a thought I feel like her name was actually Charlotte yeah, probably right. <laughs> I think her name is Charlotte. I'm feeling like Catherine. Sorry, everyone. Me. It'd um, be weird for her to call another heroine Catherine. Charlotte, you're quite right. It, everyone can stop yelling at the podcast now, which I presume they've been doing the whole time. <laughs> Charlotte. <laughs> um, yeah, I felt that she didn't really have a presence. I felt that she she was this sort of onlooker, but she didn't have a personality of her own. Um, and I and I thought that that was 
you know, she did finish writing this book um, around the time she was becoming ill, but I, I don't think mm. she stopped writing it because she was ill. I think she stopped writing it because, from my mind, I don't think she knew where it was going. And I, and I can tell, I think Sanderton has that flaw in it as a, as a, as a piece of writing in that the main character isn't well realised. And I don't think she knew what she wanted to do with her. Interesting, because I still theory. found her very vivid. I just thought I couldn't see how she would change, and so all the novels seem to be about change, about the like, mm. and changing. So that's interesting, because I did. I really loved reading about her, and I will. Yeah, it was of the two. It was the one I was more upset to come to the. Oh really? End of. Yeah, I found I I enjoyed the Watsons, but I found it. I don't know. I guess it just felt like it was so much introduction of to characters. I mean, both of them are lots of introduction to characters. We didn't get much further than that with the Watsons. To, I thought, but um, you obviously responded to it better than I did. Yeah, do you know what? I just loved it, and um, and it. I thought the characters were so alive, and and I again, I think I really liked it because it felt very Emma esque to me. It definitely did, and you could see. And I, I do wonder if it, if she did just take the bits she wanted to. Mm. for emma not least the name but um yeah you know yeah. you've got the invalid father you've got um you know the the kind of the intri- the odious sister-in-law who felt very much like a little bit of a mrs elton coming in there so mm. I, I think she's picked in i think maybe she i don't know maybe she thought oh, i don't really know where to take it and then yeah even even rescuing person. someone who's feeling awkward at a dance was, yeah <laughs> yeah taken across but um yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I didn't hate it or anything. I'd still really, really liked it. I would like to have known what happened. And you've got many um, vivid relationships between characters. She's always in all her books, isn't she? She's brilliant at giving you a lot of characters, but you know exactly what the relationship between any two of them is, and you know all the tensions in it and all that sort of thing, mm. which she gets across really quickly and well. Yeah, and I dare say there would have been, you know, a great deal more characters and and incident and all that. But um, I think. Just because you know things like Lady Denham and her niece and nephew, I so so wanted to see more of Lady Denham. The way that she conveyed very yeah. quickly to Charlotte that she must not be interested in her niece, her nephew, because her nephew needed to marry someone rich. <laughs> it was yeah. you know wonderfully yeah, done. A little bit of a Lady Catherine there. Yes, Lady Catherine, but a little more humane. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I would have liked to have seen more of. I guess both the heroes. We didn't see much of either of them because Sydney just appeared. And then this little note at the end of my my version of the Watsons um, that says there was something in the memoir that her niece wrote, I think, or her nephew or someone um, that who was it, Mister Musgrave? Mister, mm-hmm. mm, no, sorry, Mister Howard was um, was going to be the hero. Yes, I got that sense. Yes, I did get that yes. sense. But we don't see a lot about him in what's there. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's um, it's very hard to get to the end of either of them mm. and just think, what what could have been? And I can't think of any other novelists other than, I guess, Wives and Daughters was unfinished, but there's not many novelists whose work we, we so clamour for that we get all that unfinished stuff as well as their finished stuff published. Yeah. It's actually just made me want to curl up in a ball and read lots of Jane Austen again. And it's that for me, it's just the proof of how brilliant she was as a novelist in that even these fragments, 
mm. are fantastic. Even the bits that she wasn't sure about and started and didn't finish have got so much brilliance in them. And it just makes you think, like, oh, gosh, if she hadn't have died so young, what else would she have written, you know? Yeah. Did you watch the recent adaptation in inverted commas of Sanderton? I did not. Um, I, I The reviews were so bad, I thought, you know, I can't be bothered. And I also became very addicted to Peaky Blinders at around the same time. <laughs> so, Well, having read Sanderton last week, I then started watching Sanderton and it's terrible and I was instantly addicted and I watched all of it <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> it's, oh, the writing is so bad. It's because it's, it's Andrew Davis who did the BBC Pride and Prejudice, which is you know obviously yeah. unparalleled in Austin adaptations, but looking at it, he also just put all of her own dialogue in the adaptation so he didn't have to do very much, whereas this one he had to make it up. Um, and, you know, he, there are some weird shifts like the brother and sister the nephew and niece of Lily Denham are turned into a half brother and half sister so you can have a conveniently semi-incestuous relationship <laughs> I say half no step there's no blood between them but it is all very creepy um he obviously decided it'd be nice if Sydney and Charlotte were essentially Darcy and Lizzie uh, so that's that's the route he takes with it mm. um and yeah, he's much kinder to the Mr. Parker eldest than the book is, because he's such a ridiculous character in that fragment we get, whereas he's much more empathetic. But broadly, it's sort of a triumph of cast chemistry over terrible writing, because I was very keen to watch all of it and got very into it, and it was... hate watching's probably too far, but it was, yeah. I was mostly just tweeting about how absurd it was. But I'd recommend it, but also not recommend it. <laughs> if you've got a Sunday afternoon spare, maybe. I mean, there's eight hours of it, so yeah. It's just maybe too long. That's too many hours for a indifferent TV. Um, on the other hand, I can highly recommend Peaky Blinders. <laughs> Relevant. I watched five series in two weeks. Head I know, it, was, it took over my life. Everyone at work was fed up with me talking about it. There is a stage version of the Watsons um, that's either yes, touring or has just been on or something. It was completely sold out. I was very upset. But she must have made that. I can't remember the the dramatist, but she must have more or less made that up because there's so little to base it on. But it's not just about the Watsons. Oh, is it not? No, it's like very you know deep and meaningful. Um, but I was yeah, I was disappointed. It's it was on at the uh, Many Chocolate Factory, but apparently because it's sold out, it might be coming back in some form. Oh, okay. So keep an eye out for that if you're interested. I think it might be travelling. It's only a matter of time before ITV do it as well. Yeah. And I should say the Sanderton adaptation, the the unfinished novel takes up maybe two-thirds of the first episode out of eight. So <laughs> plenty that's made up. And it is like, I mean, it's 25,000 words or something that we've got, which is, you know, a third of, or maybe a quarter of a... Yeah. Of a Jane Austen novel, maybe a fifth. So I mean, you would have that... thought they would have just done four episodes and then they would have just had to make up, you know, they wouldn't have had to make up quite so much. Yeah. I mean, there's also looking like there'll be another series. So oh, God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm hoping in that series she learns to put her hair up. Mm-hmm. It's, it, was, it was always just like floating around her shoulders. It's like, is she supposed to be a child or a loose woman? Because <laughs> those are your options right now, <laughs> Charlotte. <laughs> Where was the historical accuracy advisor? I, oh. I mean, I'm f- I'm far from an expert in this period, and I could point out about ten things wrong in every scene. So. Oh dear, <laughs> you're not selling it to me, Simon. But at the same time, I couldn't start watching it. 
Compelling, but awful. Compelling, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of the two, it was, as I say, the one that I was sadder not to get not to get the rest of. Um, and even, and in fact, despite the fact that I think it was interesting that she didn't have that flaw, it's the heroine that I was more engaged with as well, much oh. as I did like Emma as well. So yeah, of the two, I'm I'm picking Sanderton as as my as my choice and the one that I wish the ghost of Jane Austen could come back and finish. Well, I mean, it's a tough choice because both of them are very, very good and very enjoyable. But I think I would go with the Watsons just because I, I enjoyed the, the setup more and I was, I had more, um, inklings of, of where the story might have gone. Mm. It was nice to have that little note about what would happen. Mm. Um, and if anybody's read any of the other, finishings of it because i think jane Austen's niece maybe finished at least one yeah, of them she did um, yeah i'd be intrigued to know if any of those are worth um reading in a more authentic <laughs> than andrew davis's attempt well yes i think anything would wouldn't it <laughs> more or less <laughs> oh andrew um but yes next well in, in a couple times in a couple of episodes time we'll be doing a recommendation from Bill, who got in touch to say we should do The Last September by Elizabeth Byrne and Loving by Henry Green. Yes, thanks very much, I say a couple times, we'll do that at some point, but it's a great idea. Thanks, Bill. Mm -hmm. But next time, what are we doing, Rachel? What have you persuaded me to do? Well, Simon is going to be stepping outside of his comfort zone um, by revisiting an author he swears he hates. Um, We are going to be reading Whose Body by Dorothy L. Sayers, Simon's favourite crime fiction writer. (laughs) And we are going to be comparing that with The 450 from Paddington by Agatha Christie, also known for our American listeners as what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw. That's right. Um, And we will try our best to discuss those without giving too much away. Yes. Um, But we can't promise anything. Sorry. We can't promise anything. And there might be a sneaky extra episode, hopefully, if everything works out. But that's as much as I'll say about that at the moment. Mm, Okay. (laughs) Um, thanks for listening everyone do get in touch at tealbooks at gmail.com and all the books and authors we've mentioned in the episode including that whistle stop tour of both 19th and 20th centuries (laughs) are available at stuckinabook.com thanks very much everyone bye bye